You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The SEC and the Department of Justice go after Edgar hackers for securities fraud. Flashpoint sees the Lazarus Group in an attack on Chile's Red Bank. Recorded Futures shares notes on Iran's Ashiane Forum. Crypto mix ransomware is being distributed by fraudulent charitable appeals. Organized gangs are using Fortnite in-game currency for money laundering. And a slickly done bogus edition of the Washington Post was being handed out in D.C. this morning. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, January 16, 2018. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has entered a civil complaint against nine defendants in connection with the 2016 hack of the SEC's Edgar reporting system. The alleged hackers are a global lot, hailing from Ukraine, Russia, and California. The SEC says the defendants made about $4.1 million dollars through illicit trading in non-public information. That's a lot more than they made with legitimate trading. The SEC points out that the hackers turned their attention to Edgar after previously seeking, with some success, to gain early access to public relations news release outlets, where companies commonly stage announcements for release. Even a brief period of unauthorized access can be exploited to gain a trading advantage. In a parallel action, the U.S. Justice Department indicted two gentlemen from Kiev, both also named in the SEC's action, on 16 counts of securities fraud conspiracy, wire fraud conspiracy, computer fraud conspiracy, wire fraud, and computer fraud. The two conspirators, we note with sadness, are in their mid-20s. Researchers at security firm Flashpoint have found the Lazarus Group's tracks in last month's attack in Chile's Red Bank, It was a social engineering attack with job-offering fish bait. The Lazarus Group is widely associated with the North Korean government. There's always the possibility of code-sharing or criminal false flags, but the operation seems consistent with much of Pyongyang's financially motivated hacking. Recorded Futures Intelligence Service, the Insect Group, this morning published a report on the Ashiane Forum, a large and growing Iranian security forum that's playing an increasingly important role in Iran's burgeoning cyber-offensive capabilities. Its influence, recorded future notes, will be seen not only in operations carried out at the direction of the Islamic Republic, but in the criminal underground as well. Security firm Coveware is outlining an unusually cruel and repellent crypto-mix ransomware campaign, This one spreads by emails representing themselves as coming from a charity devoted to helping children who suffer from cancer. The charity is bogus, but the children used as fish bait are all too real. Coveware says, 
The ransom notes go so far as to include the names, diagnosis, and even pictures of young children that the ransom payment will support. The information appears to be lifted from crowdfunding websites and local news stories that raise genuine awareness and funds for a specific child's treatment. Quote. May the social engineers behind the current crypto mix infestations receive their legal comeuppance. Good hunting to law enforcement agencies. Email continues to be an attractive target for bad actors, thanks in part to its ubiquity and antiquity. Kevin O'Brien is CEO and co-founder of Great Horn, an email security company, and he thinks it's time to rethink our approach to email protection. You're dealing with a system that's 47 years old that has been used uh, for pretty much every business purpose imaginable. And so it is also one of the primary ways in which most cyber attacks begin. So what do you propose here? Is, is it a matter of uh, training the users to detect these things, or, or do we need to uh, stop them from getting to them in the first place? It's a little bit of, of everything. But training is a compliance move, right? And security is not compliance and vice versa. It is important that a business invest in security awareness training. But you put your finger on something very interesting in asking the question the way that you did. You said, do we need to stop them from getting to users in the first place? And the answer is we can't. And that idea that we will establish a perimeter and utilize it to keep bad things out is a notion that for the most part, the cybersecurity industry has moved past in every other permutation of security technology. We don't talk about perimeter security when we think about investing in a cloud access security broker technology, a CASB. We still have this outdated idea that a binary system that says that's bad, don't deliver it, but let it through, is sufficient. It isn't. And that's where the opportunity lies for organizations to take a email security lifecycle philosophical shift approach and say, we're going to change the paradigm. We're going to look at email and think about, sure, some pre-delivery stuff where we can block the known bad emails from reaching users, but we're going to integrate into our security posture, incident response, rapid remediation, and purpose-built security for email, not try to take network technologies and gateway approaches to a system that no longer uh, works that way because we're not running network devices for an email any longer. So uh, d- describe to me in, in this scenario, what would happen if a bad email made it into my inbox and, uh, and I click the link, what happens next? The risks are that an attacker says, I'm going to go after the CyberWire podcast and I'm going to listen to their guests and say, ah, oh, they're speaking with this guy named Kevin O'Brien. So my attack will impersonate Kevin O'Brien and say, oh, we've got this podcast coming up. I have some notes to share with you before we get into the podcast recording. They send you a link to a WordPress site that they compromised a week ago, but they haven't done anything with yet. They then deploy a phishing kit to it 15 minutes after you get the message. Because that link was safe when it was originally received by you. It went to, I don't know, somebody's blog. And that deployed phishing kit isn't made active until after it's reached your inbox. There is no ability to say that's a bad email. It wasn't bad until it was weaponized later. The answer here is a heuristic approach, which says if we were to categorize all the mail that the CyberWire podcast team receives, how many of those messages from this fictional Kevin O'Brien come from address A? 
And now you've gotten a message from Kevin O'Brien. Is it really from that same sending address? This URL you just received, is it amazon.com or is it a fairly unusual uh, WordPress site? And if we plot that against a huge corpus of data uh, of many podcasters in this this scenario that we're, we're playing out, how many of them have gotten a link like this one? Is this unusual? And if it's statistically unusual, it's not the case that it's bad. It's just unusual. But we can now start to layer in additional security so that when you do click on it, maybe we run it in a browser isolation mode. Maybe we don't let you directly interact with it. If it's asking you for your credentials, maybe we're smart enough to say this looks like a credential theft attack. And we're not going to let you go and put those credentials into that site. But here's the workflow that you can speak to your team if you think this is legitimate. We can use those same concepts, different in, in implementation, for things like links and emails. And that's, I think, where the future starts to go. This is how you start to modernize email security. That's Kevin O'Brien from Greathorn. If you really must play Fortnite, Checkpoint recommends enabling two-factor authentication on your account. There's account hijacking afoot, much of it enabled by dodgy sites promising ways of accumulating V-Bucks in-game currency at a discount. The European Union anti-corruption warns that Fortnite, with its V-Bucks, is growing increasingly popular with organized crime as a money laundering medium. So don't, don't buy in-game currency at a discount. You're helping criminals. Consider satisfying your urge to trade for the wherewithal to buy loot boxes by doing the Fortnite dance instead. It will be better for your health, too. Put down that controller and dance. There's been much concern lately about deep fakes and the threat they could pose to news media, organizations, and really all kinds of people. There's been a relatively shallow but nonetheless pretty slick fake in circulation around Washington this morning. The Washington Post warned a little before 8 this morning, local time, that phony print editions of the paper announcing President Trump's resignation were being circulated around Washington. The announcement came via Twitter, posted by the Post's PR department, the screamer headline in the false edition reads simply, Unprecedented. The Post also tweeted that they think there may have been imposter websites established. The comments on the Post's tweet are surprisingly unsympathetic. A few of them remarked, in effect, that you'll be able to recognize any bogus site by its not being sequestered behind a paywall. One asked the Twitter account to hold up a copy of today's Times so that we'll know it's really you. They didn't say whether it was the Washington, New York, London, or Los Angeles Times. The Hill says that activists are handing out copies of the bogus paper at numerous locations around the Capitol. The post itself is pointing to a Facebook video Code Pink posted to its site, showing the left-oriented group's founder passing out the papers. The progressive advocacy group Move On, according to The Hill, says that it wasn't responsible for the fake, but that it approved. Those who like the fake, and a quick look at reactions, suggest to us that journalists aren't generally fans, at least not so far. They point to the edition's date, which is May 1st of this year, as enough to flag it as satire. So it's not really fake news or propaganda or any of the other forms of information operations that have been so widely exoriated in recent months, says them. It's just satire, right? Whoever put the issue together had a pretty good grasp of the Post's visual style and either a respectable staff or a whole lot of time on their hands, or both. They also had access to a good four-color press, 
and those things aren't exactly available at the checkout line in your local royal farms. Sure, they're a more easily obtained piece of infrastructure than, say, one of the turbines used in electrical power plants, and they're not just lying around in some untraceable form. We think it's safe to predict this bit of news. Expect there to be litigation. And that's no fake. Finally, we close with a brief notice of farewell to one of the last of the Second World War's code talkers. The Navajo Nation has announced the passing of Alfred K. Newman in New Mexico over the weekend. Mr. Newman, who died at the age of 94, served in the 1st Battalion, 21st Regiment of the 3rd Marine Division between 1943 and 1945. Our condolences to his family and our thanks for his service. Semper Fi. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, it's great to have you back. Uh, we had an article come by recently. This was from Forbes, written by Thomas Brewster, and it was uh, titled, Feds Can't Force You to Unlock Your iPhone with Finger or Face, a Judge Rules. What's the latest here? Yeah, so it's really a, a fascinating set of legal decisions. This was a ruling from a California judge um, my native California always seems to produce uh, some of the most notable digital privacy rulings, and, and here we are again. Uh, and that judge ruled that 
law enforcement cannot force an individual to unlock their iPhone using facial recognition, using fingerprints, etc. And the justification was that this is a violation of the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Now, where I think this gets complicated is that the Fifth Amendment traditionally has only uh, applied to testimonial evidence. So, for example, you can't be forced to testify against yourself at trial. That would be a very clear Fifth Amendment violation. However, that doesn't apply to other types of evidence, like, for example, uh, presenting yourself as part of a police lineup. Uh, You don't have a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination when it comes to that. So we've had this sort of nebulous, unclear set of judicial decisions. There's been sort of an argument as to whether facial recognition falls under that testimonial evidence or whether it falls under more like a police lineup where you're not actually testifying, you're simply just showing your face and seeing if if somebody can recognize it. Mm -hmm. The reason this is complicated as it relates to digital devices is previous courts have ruled that Entering in your passcode or using a thumbprint does count as testimonial evidence for the purposes of the Fifth Amendment. Facial recognition, in terms of its ability to unlock an iPhone, does the performs the exact same function as a thumbprint and entering a passcode. So there's really no practical difference. And I think what this judge was saying is, since there is no practical difference, why should there be a legal distinction between facial recognition and one of the other methods used? to unlock a device. And I think that's compelling. I think facial recognition as a means to unlock a phone more closely used to testimonial evidence because it's, you know, revealing something personal about oneself, uh, you know, all of the data that uh, is stored on a person's uh, smartphone or device, rather than a means to just recognize somebody, which is, I think, what the previous cases about police lineups were about. This court case has gone against some previous rulings. We, we discussed an article that came out in September where a judge allowed the federal government to force somebody to unlock their phone using facial recognition. Uh, I think what that indicates is there's going to be a, a real circuit split among our judicial circuits. And this is an, a, a very unsettled question because it kind of falls in between two areas of Fifth Amendment jurisprudence. So where does it go from here? First of all, um, how does this affect the entire nation? Does this apply nationwide? And then do you suppose this will make its way to the Supreme Court? I think it's possible it makes its its way to the Supreme Court. There's no nationwide applicability to this decision. It's not like there was a nationwide injunction. This is not binding precedent on any of the other circuits outside the Ninth Circuit where it was decided in the Northern District of California. Um, It's certainly persuasive to some other judges that might be considering these cases. This is something that's going to become more and more ubiquitous. There are a lot of cases where there's going to be very compelling evidence contained on personal devices. And that means, you know, especially as the iPhone X becomes one of the most prominent cell phones on the market and future editions of the iPhone and uh, perhaps other devices use facial, rec- uh, facial recognition as a tool to unlock the phone, you're going to get a lot of cases where that's the only ticket for law enforcement to get access to that data. I think there's indication that this case is going to get appealed. That would go to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and I think it's definitely the type of case that you could see at the Supreme Court just because it's straddling 
two different lines of cases dealing with the right against self-incrimination. Uh, it's compelling, to me at least, that there's, since there's no practical distinction between using a thumbprint or using a passcode to unlock a device between simply showing your face, you know, that leads me to believe that there should be no legal distinction as well. And I think that's something um, we'll have to see the, the Supreme Court wrestle with. All right. Well, we will keep an eye on it. Time will tell, of course. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.